Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on business and the markets. I'm Rachna Shanbogh, the Europe economics correspondent. Coming up on today's show... Global markets suffer from coronavirus jitters. How will Argentina tackle its unsustainable debt? And the value of data. What benefits can the data economy bring? Financial markets have stabilised after a surge in the number of cases of COVID-19 outside of China. Spikes in the number of infections in Italy, Iran and South Korea triggered a fearful market response on Monday. Fears are growing that it won't be possible to stop the global spread of coronavirus. Stocks around the globe have tanked due to concerns over the coronavirus. Tenure T-note yield is approaching a record low. That would be 1.33%, down 10 basis points here. You were warned it was going to be a rough opening on Wall Street this morning. Uh, Stocks actually around the globe have been really taking a hit. The FTSE 100 had its worst day in four years. Stocks on Wall Street fell by more than 3%, and Milan's stock market dropped by 6%. Meanwhile, business closures and quarantines in China have restricted activity for some weeks. But that might be slowly changing. Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor. He was at the world's biggest wholesale market in Yiwu in China. Simon, you spoke to some people in Yiwu. What's the mood like? The the mood was one of relative relief. You know, the market was initially supposed to open uh, at the start of February, at the end of the Chinese New Year holiday. Because of the uh, spread of the coronavirus, they kept it shut for an additional three weeks. Um, So you finally had had businesses being able to go back in to open up their stalls, customers coming from around the world back to the market. Uh, Not in huge numbers, I should say, but the point is that, you know, you finally have activity resuming. And you've got people who are feeling relatively confident um, that the virus itself is, is under control. Uh, infections uh, have more or less stopped rising around the country. And the fact that the government is now beginning to press the economic accelerator again is, you might say, a sign that the, the government's worried about the economy, but it's also a sign that the government believes that the virus is under control. And, and that's something that for everybody working there is their number one concern. President Xi vowed to restart the Chinese economy. To what extent does it feel like China's back in business? It's getting back into business, but very, very slowly. So the trend is positive, you could say. But if you look at the numbers, it's still far, far below the levels that you'd expect to see for the economy at at this point in the year. You know, more than 100 million migrant workers are are still at home. They've not been able to get back to the factories and the shops that they staff that make the economy tick. If you look at other ranges of activity indicators, such as coal consumption uh, or traffic congestion, you know, more than 50% uh, down to compare to it to what it normally 
activities at this time of year. Provinces have started to report on the number of businesses that have, have reopened. Some say that, you know, upwards of uh, 70 to 90 percent are back open again. But when you actually speak to the businesses themselves, you find that they're operating at very, very low capacity um, utilization rates, something like, you know, 50 percent. So it's it still has a ways to go to truly be back in business. Nevertheless, there seems to be a sort of turning point in activity in China. But outside of China, markets around the rest of the world are only just starting to register the consequences of the virus. Do you think what's been happening in China will provide a guide to what we can expect to see elsewhere? Well, every country is going to approach the virus differently. And so it's very difficult to say that, that what you see in China will be mirrored elsewhere, especially because the controls that were, were taken in China were so extremely restrictive. I think there's two big variables. One is you know, really how rapidly does the virus spread elsewhere, that the cluster of infections um, that we've seen so far in Italy and South Korea, Iran, potentially now in Japan as well, are extremely worrying. And then the second big variable is, is how do the governments respond? China responded by putting its economy effectively into lockdown, uh, you know, putting hundreds of millions of people into a state of, of semi-quarantine, which was really a sharp, immediate blow to the economy, but is one of the reasons why, why activity is beginning to get back to normal now. I think it's conceivable that other countries will take somewhat more gradual approaches to dealing with the virus, and whether those are more effective is going to be seen uh, in, in the coming weeks and months. We've talked a lot about disruption to supply chains on Money Talks over the past few weeks. Even if China's factories are getting started now, how long will the rest of the world keep feeling the effects of that disruption? So assuming, and it's a big assumption, that the epidemic doesn't become a true global pandemic, that, that it really still is a China-centric issue, I think we'd see the supply disruptions going on for at least another month or so, probably into the second quarter. The base case of most analysts is that it'll probably take until the end of March for China to, to sort of be fully back, 100% back in business. You'll then have just a chain effect from all the delays that have been built up over the past couple of months. Getting supply back on track is going to be very lumpy. There'll be all kinds of different shortages that will ensue that we can't quite predict right now. So I, I think we'll see the supply chain disruption you know, continuing well into the second quarter. And, and that really is the best case scenario. As the virus spreads, are we also likely to see China suffering from weaker global demand, just as other countries have so far been dealing with shortfalls in supply because of disruption in China? That certainly is a, a big likely scenario at, at the moment. You know, China is is very much an open economy in the sense of being a big trading power. It's, it's the world's biggest exporter, the world's second biggest importer. Um, so the best case scenario for China is, you know, growth getting back on track domestically and then and then feeding into a very strong global economy. Um, but with risk aversion spreading globally, with the likelihood of uh, restrictions being implemented around other countries, other countries suffering losses of confidence, the weak external demand is going to be a concern for everybody and Certainly, if you're the world's biggest exporter, uh, that's going to hold back the economy as well. You mentioned risk aversion spreading globally, and I wanted to turn to that market reaction. These are investors, not epidemiologists. How well are they reading the risks? 
You're absolutely right on that. And it's been, you know, interesting to see economists and investors try to figure out what exactly is going on with the virus, just like everybody else. And so instead of putting out, you know, daily charts about uh, industrial demand, they've been putting out daily charts about the spread of infections and trying to analyze, you know, just how infectious it actually is and what the incubation period is. But ultimately, these are issues which, you know, investors aren't really equipped to deal with. And I think you can see the big swing in risk sentiment over the weekend as an indication of, you know, investors not being epidemiologists, you know, people who really were much more focused on the spread of the coronavirus were warning that this was looking likely to spread globally. And yet it took just a couple of days of bad news out of Italy and South Korea for global investors to cotton on to that. So they're not scientists. And that raises you know, the, the hopeful possibility right now, which is that perhaps they're overreacting, having previously underreacted. But ultimately, I think having seen the spread of infections, everybody is just exercising a lot more caution because there's a lot more uncertainty about how serious this is and, and how global it's going to become. And what can economic policy do to stabilise the situation? Do you think it's time for central banks to start stepping in? Well, there's limits to what they can do. You know, if a central bank steps in, we're talking about monetary stimulus. But what the world is facing right now is, you know, severe supply shortages and disruptions because of businesses not being able to operate as normal. You know, if people don't want to go to work or companies aren't able to produce to full capacity, you can't simply stimulate a recovery. That said, some lowering of rates insofar as it's possible, and obviously the space to do so is very limited in the West, but some lowering might be necessary to help alleviate financial stress. And China is interesting in this respect because, you know, being more of a command economy, the central bank and officials here have taken a much more hands-on approach to dealing with some of the potential problems up front. So they've told banks to basically evergreen loans, to, to not call in loans that are maturing. They've weighed in on, on big landlords and they've said it's time to cut back on rents. Otherwise, a lot of your tenants are going to be in trouble. And they've begun to extend all kinds of different subsidies to, to small and medium-sized enterprises, giving them um, tax breaks, uh, saying that they can have breaks on their social security contributions for several months at least. So it's a whole hodgepodge of different interventions. And effectively, what they're doing is they're, they're recognizing that there's a real economic shortfall for, you know, at least one or two months, potentially for longer than that. And they don't want to have that economic shortfall turn into a financial crisis. So you can say they're basically pressing pause on the economy, pressing pause on the financial system, and then waiting for the economy and for people to get back to health for things to resume. You know, other countries may not be willing to take such an interventionist approach, but I, I think there is something to recommend in, in what China has done. And if we see that, that wider spread of the virus, do you think we're then in global downturn territory? I mean, we're certainly going to be in the territory of an exceptionally weak first quarter spreading into the second quarter as well. You know, epidemiologists say that with this kind of outbreak, oftentimes the thing that stops it is the beginning of the summer, the beginning of, you know, properly warm weather. So if that is the case, then, you know, we could well be looking at a global downturn that does continue throughout the first half um, and then a, hopefully a very strong recovery in the second half. Um, the idea being that the fundamentals of global growth and global demand and global supply have not changed, but you have extreme short-term interruptions. Um, and when things get back online, you, you will end up with a very strong recovery. 
Um, so that is the, the the somewhat hopeful scenario, but but there is potentially a very bleak and and worrying few months ahead of us before we get there. Simon, thank you very much. Thank you. And there is lots more coverage of the coronavirus in The Economist. Try a subscription. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Argentina is deep in the red. It's a problem the country has struggled with before. It has defaulted on its debt eight times in the past 200 years. Now it hopes to restructure debts of over $100 billion. That includes the large amounts it owes to the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, which was supposed to help stabilise the country's finances. Argentina has been highly critical of the IMF, but its new government has agreed to come to the table for fresh talks. How did the country get itself into this situation? The previous government took on a great deal of debt, a lot of it in uh, foreign currency and dollars. And uh, you know, combined with the uh, panic investors felt when they knew that that government was going to fall and be replaced by the Peronist populists who are now in charge, that meant that the peso, Argentina's currency, dropped dramatically, which inflated the value of that dollar debt. Simon Cox is the Emerging Markets Editor at The Economist. And so now um, the IMF admits that it's unsustainable, that the kind of fiscal heroics you would have to do to repay that debt are neither economically feasible nor politically possible. So back in 2018, the IMF gave Argentina a $57 billion standby financing agreement. Why hasn't that helped the situation? So at the point that they gave that agreement, the Fed was uh, tightening interest rates in the US and uh, that made it much more difficult then for Argentina to attract the kind of foreign capital inflows that it had relied on. Now, at various points during that uh, IMF agreement, it looked like they might be able to get away with it. It looked like they might be able to come through. The government was actually quite serious about uh, balancing its budget. It ran an extremely tight uh, monetary policy But they got hit by a number of of shocks. Um, There was a bad drought. The trade war didn't help. And then uh, they had a a primary election in Argentina, which showed that the the government, the market-friendly government, was going to fall and be replaced by the Peronists. And fear of those populists uh, actually made their return more likely because fear of their return meant that the Argentine peso dropped dramatically and spreads on government debt uh, increased quite sharply, which made it much more difficult to sustain and meant that the government then had to be uh, even tougher And that obviously undermined its popularity and it went on to lose that election. Tell us more about Argentina's history with the IMF. Argentines are typically very critical of the fund, aren't they? Yes, they are. And, you know, it's a very um, torrid and complicated uh, history. At times, you know, the IMF has been accused of being much too strict. At other times, it's been accused of overindulging Argentina. And, you know, the bad blood goes back a a long way. For example, in the 1990s, uh, Argentina, in order to fight inflation, adopted this very strict uh, exchange rate peg to the dollar. Now, the IMF were initially sceptical about that, but it seemed to work for a period, and so they came round to it. And then they uh, lent uh, that Argentine government a lot of money to try and defend the peg. That all failed. There was a a very messy uh, default that took years and years uh, to resolve. And you you could criticise the IMF both for trying to defend an unsustainable policy, for lending too much, and also for 
finally pulling the plug. So they sort of got it from both directions. It was actually interesting that the previous government was actually quite quick then to turn to the IMF in 2018. That was seen as you know quite a bold move given this difficult political history. And uh, the IMF was very keen for that programme to work. It was an enormously generous uh, programme, you know, by far its biggest uh, loan. So it's really quite embarrassing for all sides that it's uh, ended in such miserable failure. Now the government's willing to talk. What's it hoping to achieve? Yes, yeah, so the moves are still quite embryonic. The new government said that it wouldn't sign up for a new IMF programme. It didn't want the IMF to dictate policy. And you know, for a while, it looked like they would try and uh, get by without any fresh IMF money. What's changed over the last few days is that they said, well, they'll welcome the IMF team in to do uh, what's called an Article 4 consultation, that is to sort of look at their policies, and that this would be an initial step towards possibly a, a new IMF loan. There's lots of uncertainty about what form that IMF loan could take. I think some in Argentina want the IMF just to forgive some of the debt that they've already accumulated to the IMF. That would be an enormous break with past precedent. What the IMF has always done in the past is give countries fresh money to repay the old money. They never formally take a a hit on their loans. I suppose the natural question is, why should any new deal succeed where the last one failed? Yes, it's a a good question. And, uh, you know, obviously the risks of of failure are reasonably high. I mean, the IMF uh, already has lent this country a lot of money. So if it wants to get that money back, it's very much in its interest to make that economically feasible and politically feasible. It will be easier if uh, Argentina's other creditors from the private sector agree to write down their own claims on the government. And that's going to be the next big hurdle that the government faces. Uh, It's supposed to offer those private creditors terms uh, in the middle of March. So it'll say to them, we're, we're prepared to repay you know, this much and you'll have to accept a loss of you know, whatever size. It's up to those creditors to decide if they're willing to accept that deal or not. Um, 75% of them, uh, generally speaking, have to accept the deal for it to go through. Uh, now, if they do, and my guess is that eventually they will because they want to get some money back, uh, if they do, then uh, you know, the IMF can presumably offer f- fresh money to repay the old loans. And that gives them some uh, breathing room. And Argentina's starting position is not entirely hopeless. Uh, you know, the exchange rate has uh, depreciated a lot, which makes you know, Argentina more competitive than it was. The previous government made some effort to balance the books. And so you know, there's some hope that if growth does return, perhaps uh, Argentina can uh, get out of this mess. Simon, thank you very much. Thank you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Data have often been likened to oil. Seen as the fuel of the future, they have become a valuable resource. From breakthroughs in healthcare to perfecting tailored adverts, many organisations see data as an important commodity. But what does the new world of a data economy actually look like? Diane Coyle is Bennett Professor of Public Policy at Cambridge University in England. 
She's one of the authors of a new report which looks at the benefits data can bring to people's lives. Diane, tell us, what makes data different to other goods in the economy? There's a lot of it around and it's been growing at an absolutely extraordinary pace. So everybody realises that it's important for business, for innovations, for things like health inventions that can make us all um, improve our health outcomes. So it's partly that it's growing so quickly. But it's not like other economic goods. It's not like an apple or a haircut where you can have that and purchase that and nobody else can purchase it at the same time. Data is what we call in the trade non-rival, like many public goods, like access to your local park or, or the road. And it's also got lots of externalities involved in it, which means that one person's use of data or provision of data affects other people. We often think about the negative ones, which is the potential loss of privacy, but there are lots of positive ones as well. So, for example, using the whole population's health data to develop those medical innovations. And you have a report coming out this week, which is looking at valuing data. Can you tell us a little bit about who's sponsoring the report or why you're doing this? So we at the Bennett Institute, along with the Open Data Institute, did this report funded by the Nuffield Foundation. And their interest and our interest was in understanding how this rapidly growing data economy can benefit citizens widely. Like any new innovation, it has great potential for improvements in health services, urban services, transportation, lots of areas of life. But there's a need to make sure that the benefits spread very widely. And so understanding where the value is created and how it's distributed was the purpose of trying to um, write this report and understand those issues. Tell us a little bit about what you cover and what your conclusions are. The fact that data has those particular economic characteristics means that market prices don't provide the whole value to society. You can obviously get some market prices in data, although they're quite thin markets and there's a lot of variation in the prices. But the real social value will um, not be provided by the market. So it's partly trying to understand how do you value those externalities, the way that aggregating data can make it more valuable. But there are also information characteristics. So it's not just that you have a data record, it's that it conveys certain information as well. And so part of the means of valuing it is thinking about those characteristics. How general is it? How accurate is it? What kind of time period and what geography does it refer to? All of those have to go into the mix. So we're advocating looking at the value of data through these two lenses, the economics with those peculiar characteristics that are not like apples and haircuts, but also the information characteristics. And you talked about how aggregate data can be valuable, but Individual bits of data have value as well. My health data, for example, matter to me personally, but also they form part of a broader picture on the health of the United Kingdom. That's right. Is there a way to value those bits of data differently depending on their use? I think we've got to be really careful not to get hung up on personal data as a piece of property. I think it's really important to understand that a lot of the valuable information content in personal data actually comes from the averages, the population, even something that seems really personal, like my blood pressure, only has meaning if I know what population averages are and what the healthy levels are. So privacy matters a lot. We care a lot about certain kinds of information not getting into various hands, but that's not quite the same as this image of personal data as, as your own property. Are there any benefits to allowing people to own their own data, for example, because that ensures then that the data are kept securely? I think ownership is just the wrong way to think about it. We should be thinking in terms of what rights of access to different people and different institutions have to what data sets. And going on from that, how do we regulate that and what kinds of institutions will determine who gets the rights of access and how it's managed? And on that regulation point, there are 
often complaints that major internet companies are exploiting us for our data. Do you share that view and how would you go about regulating platforms? I do share that view. They have been early to spot the advantages of having these vast troves of data and they use it and they continue to accumulate it as a way of stopping competitors getting into the market. And there's a loop, a feedback loop, whereby they have a great service, they get lots of customers, they get lots of customer data, they can then improve the service. And that is reinforcing their market power. And I think it's really important as a matter of competition and innovation and new technologies over time that regulators find some way of giving access to those data troves, to new entrants into the market. So, for example, allowing rivals to make use of the platform? Well, allowing rivals to make use of uh, the data in certain formats. So there's clearly a trade-off with commercial confidentiality, but the market power of some of the big companies is now so great that I think, just as with open banking in the United Kingdom, um, the regulators are developing data access and APIs that allow new entrants into that market. That has to happen more broadly. I suppose the established tech firms might argue that the forced sharing of data might reduce their own innovation. How would you deal with that criticism? Well, that's clearly what they would argue. And this isn't a difficult business because we're looking ahead to say what kind of new competition do we think could come into the market. The question is really, do you think somebody could come in and overtake Google the way Google overtake Yahoo or overtake Facebook in the way that they overtook MySpace? So my reading of it is that that could not now happen. And so we are going to have to force some kinds of data access. And I think this is the way that regulators generally are moving, at least outside the United States. The European Commission just this past week published a paper on data that raises that kind of possibility. And what do you think it will take to see a liquid marketplace for data? Do you think we will get there at some point? I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure if there's ever going to be enough kind of standardisation or commoditization of data for that to be possible. I mean, clearly there are some markets, there are companies that sell um, kind of averages or archetypes that they have drawn from very large databases of what kinds of purchases people make and what kinds of characteristics they have. And so to that extent, that market can certainly grow. But if you think the value is actually use value in specific contexts, then that is going to make it very hard to have data markets. But in any case, there isn't really a standard measure of pricing units of data or even defining what units of data are. And so until somebody comes up with that kind of formula, you know, in the same way that the options market didn't exist before somebody came up with the options pricing formula, then it won't happen. Diane Coyle, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Rachna Schoenberg. In London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.